Hello and welcome to this bonus podcast episode from Minter Ellison. Aged care is a sector under pressure as it battles the COVID-19 pandemic, an understaffed, fatigued workforce and a lack of funding, not to mention the burden and desire to deliver the care and services to support some of the most vulnerable members of our community. Against this tense background, the federal government is proceeding with a reform agenda developed off the back of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. Governance was identified as a key priority for providers and the government has now introduced a new bill that sets out new governance obligations. In this evolving environment, one thing is clear. Providers need to remain focused on effective risk management and organisational governance. But how can they make that happen? How can they respond sufficiently to ongoing regulatory change and will the proposed forms really bring a tangible uplift in the delivery of safe, high-quality care? To answer these questions and more, Minter Ellison brought together a panel featuring Minter Ellison partners Penelope Eden and Donna Worthington, along with Virginia Burke from Mercy Health and Graham Hodges from Regis Health. You're about to hear some of the key insights and takeaways from that discussion which was hosted in early February 2022. To kick things off, here's Penelope Eden, our aged care sector leader. Now, before we hear from our panellists, I thought I'd start with a high-level overview of the governance reforms, which are contained in Schedule 5 of the Bill, which will amend the Aged Care Act and the Quality and Safety Commission Act and subordinate legislation. So broadly, these amendments will introduce new responsibilities for approved providers in relation to the membership of their governing bodies, the establishment of new advisory bodies, as well as measures to improve leadership and culture. These measures are aimed at improving transparency and accountability and ensuring that the focus of of approved providers from the top down is on the best interests of consumers. Schedule 5 also introduces new reporting responsibilities, including the requirement to provide an annual statement on the provider's operations. A new code of conduct will be introduced, which will likely mirror the obligations contained in the NDIS code. Approved providers will be required to ensure that their aged care workers and governing persons comply with the requirements set out in the code and a failure to do so may result in civil penalties or enforceable undertakings. New worker screening requirements will be introduced and an aged care screening database will be established by the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. Importantly, there there will be provisions or there are provisions in the bill that enable the sharing of protected information with NDIS providers and with the NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Commission. The governing body will be required to ensure that all staff members have the necessary qualifications, skills and experience to deliver quality care and ensure that they are given opportunities to develop their skills. A fit and proper person test will will replace the disqualified individual test and approved providers will be required to conduct suitability reviews of their key personnel every 12 months. Providers will be required to notify the ACQSC of any changes to their key personnel within 14 days or of any material changes to their organisational or governance structures or to their ability to manage their financial responsibilities. From 1 March next year, existing approved providers must have a majority of independent non-executive directors and at least one member of the governing body must have experience in the provision of clinical care. There are also new rules relating to approved provider entities that are wholly owned subsidiaries, preventing directors 
from prioritising the interests of the holding company in circumstances where it does not have responsibilities under aged care law. Providers must also establish a quality care advisory body to be chaired by a non-executive member with appropriate experience in the provision of clinical care to monitor and ensure accountability for the care provided. This quality care advisory body must provide the board with a written report every six months and the board must advise in writing how they have considered this report when making decisions regarding care delivery. At least annually, providers must offer for care recipients and their representatives to establish a consumer advisory body to provide the board with feedback about the quality of care provided at the service. Providers will also be required to prepare an annual statement setting out details of their compliance with the yet-to-be-drafted accountability principles, which will be made publicly available on My Age Care. This annual statement will include details of key personnel, attestations by the board, information on staffing, financial information and complaints data. The explanatory memorandum to the bill states that this measure will help care recipients and their families to understand key details of providers, including information about financial circumstances, staffing levels and complaints. Bill number two also introduces changes to prudential requirement, requirements, empowering the ACQSC to request information either from approved providers or borrowers about loans made using RAD funds. There will also be increased penalties for misuse of RADs for both approved providers and key personnel. So these are, are fairly significant reforms and much of the detail which will be contained in the accountability principles and in further amendments to the ACQSD rules is still in the drafting. So now I'm going to pause and bring in my panellists. Uh, Virginia, first question for you, first cab off the rank. This is really um, a, a very challenging operating environment for, um, for the sector. Since the beginning of COVID, providers have been effectively governing in a state of crisis. And as the Chair of Mercy Health, you're governing two of the hardest hit sectors. How, how does this impact the way that you steer the ship? Um, so the flow of information has been um, a critical issue. The Certainly in, in the first year of the pandemic in 2020, the level of communication between board chair and CEO was greatly increased. Um, the, you know, we ran an incident command system or are still running that for many months. We're you know, a group of experts in our organisation in all areas, clinical, procurement, uh, comms, have come together to really lead the um, response to COVID. High level of communication with the board. We haven't changed our board schedule or timing, um, but we've had very frequent updates um, from our CEO and I think that gives the board confidence that everything is in hand and it gives us the information to deal with our owners, our stakeholders and um, to offer them reassurance about how we're managing things. Um, I think the issue too in, in your question about steering the ship, the, we've had to be very transparent with our staff, with our um, residents and clients about what is happening and that has been really difficult because as we all know sometimes it's very difficult to work out what is happening and um, I saw a document this week prepared by one of our clinical leads and it, we operate in five states and territories and that document set out the different requirements for each public health unit in five states and territories and I was just struck by the level of complexity that that document has to be changed you know weekly if not daily and that our organisation has to accommodate that complexity at each, you know, in each different geography. 
And really, in terms of governance, it's got to the point where we're, if we're going to govern effectively, we need to now come up with a different way of managing this crisis that streamlines some of that, that offers our people clarity and reassurance, this is the way we're going to manage things. And so I think um, it's been a time of great adaptability in governance, I think, if nothing else. There are a number of clients that we're speaking with that are you know, really struggling with where to start. Um, what advice do you have for them? What, what's been your lessons learned and tips for preparing for the regulatory change? Well, I think the most useful tool, if you like, has been um, a mapping exercise or a series of mapping exercises that we've done and continued to do really since the Royal Commission um, final or interim report, in fact. So really a list of, you know, these are the recommendations that are coming. Uh, this is what we are doing now and this is what we have to do. So it's really a gap analysis and that might sound extremely straightforward to, to everyone listening, but it's been very useful for, for the board to understand even some of, you know, I think at a strategic level to understand what are the headline items from the final report of the Royal Commission, you know, the really the issues of how do we deliver care in a way that's, you know, human rights focused. Well, that is a big strategic issue because it goes to models of care and how you're going to resource those models of care. So even at that strategic level to map, what are, you know, are we prepared for a paradigm shift, you know? And I think that's been useful. But then at a more sort of granular level, if, for example, the list of the governance changes in Bill Number 2 that you outlined at the start of this seminar, um, we've done a mapping exercise of all of those things. Um, for example, the new requirement for screening of aged care workers, screening of uh, people in governing bodies, volunteers, contractors. Well, most large organisations, and there are small too, I'd imagine, have screening tools. Well, you know, is it more of the same? What do we need to add? In most cases, I think for us, we're already doing a great deal of screening and we have requirements with the ACNC um, in terms of key personnel and, um, uh, you know, uh, non-disqualified uh, directors will have to shift some of that but you know that kind of gap analysis is a really good place to start it means that directors can be familiar with the change understand what we're doing now and what we need to do next um, so while that might sound rather basic I think it's really useful to do it on a number of levels there are also some quick wins there perhaps that as you've identified we're doing some screening already what are the what are the nuances? How do we need to adapt it to make it fit for purpose with the new reforms? And of course, we were just talking before we joined the webinar about the fact that a lot of this is still in the drafting. We don't know what the accountability principles and the, you know, the detail of this is going to look like. So it's a best guess, isn't it, at this point yes. against uh, what's broadly articulated in Bill Number 2. Virginia, what do you consider um, is the key role for boards to be playing um, then during this time? Well, it's certainly a, it's a time in which we have to be extremely proactive, I think. I mean, maybe that's, that's probably been the case for some years, but um, I think, you know, each director in, in exercising their duties has to be well across the substantive reforms and even to a degree the, the, the lesser reforms, if you like, or the smaller issues. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of, one of the issues is this new duty of care, for example, that's, that has been flagged. Whether that's part of the code of conduct or not, um, people on the call will, will um, recall that I think it's a significant shift in our accountability. So I think directors have to be aware when the bar is raised. Maybe it was always up there, but this I think is a shift. 
And the, the statutory duty that's proposed is that directors will have an obligation or the provider will have an obligation to um, ensure that the care that's provided is high quality and safe care and that it takes into account you know, the wishes of the resident, foreseeable risk, other circumstances. Whether that's contained in a code of conduct um, or separately legislated, and that is not entirely clear to me, Penny, it may be clear to members of your team, but um, something to keep an eye on perhaps. But I think you know, this, this is an issue where we have to then ask, well, if that's a duty that we have, what is the actual standard of care now? And while I don't think there's any legislative expression of it, the Royal Commission has certainly expressed in its recommendations what that care will be. And it is a very high standard and, and it's what people expect and want and what we would want for ourselves. You know, it's care that's delivered with compassion, that has the dignity of the person as, the, as its focus. Um, it's care that, you know, clinically assessed, that meets people's individual needs and wishes, um, that uh, there's an element of reablement there that will help people to live as best they can, more mobility, all of that. And I think, um, you know, that's a, very, that's a very high standard. And if we think about the current constraints in our system, it, I, I think it is very difficult to deliver that now. So the directors have to ask themselves, can we deliver that? You know, what, what are we going to have to do to deliver that standard of care? Um, there's, you know, accessorial li liability attached to that for directors. That's a really serious matter. That hasn't been the case previously. We breached the standards. As I understand it, you might want to correct me, Penny, but I don't think there was any civil penalty attached to that for directors. Um, so I think it's a lifting of the bar and that directors then have to be aware of that. It's a bit like when um, work health and safety laws were reformed and became uniform and the, a positive duty was placed on directors. It was probably 2008, 2009 that that happened. And I think there was this lifting that it wasn't enough for directors just sort of to react. You actually had to take a proactive step to ensure that you could meet work health and safety obligations. And I think the intent here is similar. So it is um, an extra burden for directors, I think, to be aware of. Absolutely. I, I think, um, as you've said, um, you know, this, this new duty contains elements that are both objective, you know, what is diligent and skillful. I mean, we can look at what this, we can set that standard, but also, you know, subjective elements. How, how are boards to grapple with, with with that duty and understand their obligations. As you say, there are these new um, civil penalty provisions, um, accessorial liabilities. You know, how do you grapple? Is that is that about information flow? Is that yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Well, it certainly is about information flow, and I think you have to understand. You know, what what is you know what's the standard, what's required, what information does the board need to satisfy um, the duty, and that is a constant challenge for boards, and we have to always you know engage and re-engage on the information that we're receiving and, um, you know, it's very clear that is the obligation of the director. That's not up to management. Directors have to ask the information they need. Um, and I think, um, you know, I, the things like annual attestation, you know, are very important, but in a sense they're kind of the end of the chain. Um, there's this fundamental question of, of are your risk management systems in place? Are they linked sufficiently to clinical governance systems? And perhaps for some organisations, particularly smaller ones, it's quite challenging to have an adequate clinical governance framework that meets the current requirements um, for you know, someone with clinical expertise and the sort of quality and safety reporting that these um, reforms and Bill Number 2 actually quite specifically require. So I think there is um, a need for um, an information flow that is picking up proper, properly integrated systems and that, that's not easy. 
And Penny, I'm not sure quite sort of how much detail is really useful here, but um, perhaps I could talk about the development of our quality and safety systems if that is helpful. It would be, if we could just dig into that a little bit, please, Virginia, that would be really helpful. Well, I suppose um, one of the new requirements is for a care governance committee, and I think most people will be familiar with that. And um, Mercy Health is a health, uh, you know, a hospital provider, acute care provider. So for us, um, you know, a clinical governance framework is, um, is uh, you know, just an established part of our organisation. And probably over the last 10 years, we've expanded our clinical governance framework to include aged care and to make separate provision, actually, for the nature of aged care, which is not the same as acute care, as we all know. Um, nonetheless, we are working within that framework of, you know, what is safe care, what is quality care, um, and how do you integrate it? And so I suppose we've built, over time, a, um, a quality committee. For us, we call it the Board Quality Committee in the language of the Bill Number 2. It's the Care Governance Committee. Um, it has, you know, a forward plan and, and you know, many different uh, reporting elements to it. Um, there's obviously all the sorts of um, safety indicators you'd expect, quality indicators, um, the usual ones for us in, in, in aged care of falls and weight management and medication errors, um, uh, pressure injuries, infection control. And we've built, of course, over time, um, you know, incident management systems and um, the current serious incident management system as well has been fed into that. But I think um, beyond all of that, there's also a need for indicators that are qualitative. And I think that's really that's challenging because you need to resource that. You need to be able to survey people, your residents, your staff, residents particularly. You know, what is what is care like for them? Are they happy? Are they lonely? You know, we've done surveys on loneliness that that are reported into our quality committee. Um, so I think there's a quite a broad suite of indicators that we are tracking, and where we can, we access or built our own data sets and have tried to benchmark with other organisations on some of that, which I think is um, really important for the aged care sector because some of that has been quite sort of mysterious or we haven't really been able to share that information. So I think that's important. So the qualitative data, the feedback from residents, from residents' families, um, you know, net promoter scores, all of these things need to be part of that quality system. And I think then the next step that um, we have worked on is triangulating our workforce data with all of that quality and safety data. And I think that's a critical, um, a critical stage uh, for developing a proper health and quality, uh, quality and safety system. So things like turnover and sick leave and work cover claims and work cover incidents, um, all of that data is fed into the quality committee. Um, and each, each facility or home looked at from all, all of those elements to give it a sort of score out of 100 is how we do it. And then we can benchmark it against other facilities within our organisation because that's where we know we've got good data. And then external facilities where we've been able to, uh, you know, other organisations where we've been able to do that. So um, that might be way too much detail, Penny, but I think just the last part of that is um, complaint systems as well, to have robust complaint systems. Um, one thing I've learned from um, uh, other clinicians, in fact, on the Mercy Health Board is that you should welcome complaints. Um, welcome them with open arms because they tell you about your own service. They are a gift to the organisation and I think if you can bring that mentality to your quality and safety system, uh, that goes a long way, I think, to the, the attitude that we need to bring. And the final aspect that I've found from a board perspective so useful is the use of internal audit. Um, a robust internal audit uh, system is, is so important because you can then independently assess 
are our systems actually doing what we think they're doing? And that gives us a, uh, a lens to um, objectively look at what we're doing and to improve it. I mean, that's, that's the point of it. So I think those elements are what strike me as sort of the key, uh, the key aspects of our own development of uh, quality and safety. Yeah, that's really helpful, Virginia. Uh, and as you say, this is a continuous improvement cycle, and that's certainly, um, you know, what the what the ACQSC are looking at, aren't they? When when we're engaging with them on, uh, you know, how we, not just how we collect the data, but what we're doing with it. As you say, triangulating it with other, you know, workforce information and so on. That's that's really helpful. Graham, I might uh, now bring you in, if I could. Um, We've heard from Virginia about the, the many challenges confronting the sector and the impact on governance. And I guess I'm interested in, in, uh, in your perspective as a listed provider, how has your approach um, to governing had to adapt in order to respond to the changing landscape? Yeah, thank you, Penny. Um, look, I, I, I just say that uh, I agree with absolutely what uh, Virginia said. And, and just at the very outset, I'd just take my um, a moment just to, <clears throat> to thank the workers across the sector for uh, the enormous effort that we've seen. Um, it's over several years and under enormous pressure. So I think all of us who are in sort of senior roles in these organisations uh, understand that but um, and have enormous empathy for our workforces who, are, who really care for our, our residents. So I, I guess in terms of the, the way I think about your question in terms of how we approach it, I mean, we have the two aspects of it, I guess, the, the strategic or the medium-term aspect. And um, a bit like Virginia was saying, I mean, we were watching very early on in the Royal Commission. We can sense the direction, and it was already a direction there anyway in terms of the sector, the, the residential sector moving to uh, subacute uh, with clinical uh, requirements uh, increasing and capabilities across the business um, increasing in terms of expectations and, and delivery. Um, and obviously that's been um, you know, run in parallel with the uh, regulatory expectations uh, as well. So you know, we set up uh, in 2019 uh, a, a board, uh, a formal board committee, a clinical care uh, uh, committee. Um, and that's been, uh, we debated a, a formal charter as uh, chaired by our independent director, um, Professor Christine Bennett, who's obviously a, a medical um, uh, clinical expert. Um, and we, um, we have five meetings a, a year for the board uh, committee, um, but at every board meeting, we have a conversation about um, the clinical um, governance and clinical care, um, just as we would on work, work, workforce, health and safety, etc. So it was sort of set up. It was um, there was training done for the board ahead of that committee really taking effect, um, you know, and really sort of building its capability at the end of 2019. And also um, our CEO at the time, who was relatively new. Uh, use the opportunity to build um, expertise across the executive team with, with, with much deeper clinical experience. And um, I think, you know, we benefited from those executives coming in, largely from the hospital network, where a number of these things had already been uh, in their sector for many years and we were sort of catching up. The aged care sector's really been in catch-up mode here. So that was sort of the 
strategic, if you like, and, and then we've been working through what systems we need, um, you know, what do we need to update in terms of our, our governance principles, our reporting, you know, what cadence do we have around this, what data do we need to collect, and all of that, we've now got at least a couple of years under our belt in terms of collecting that and analysing it, and then utilising some of that data as an early warning sign for facilities where where some things might slip and you say, well, look, there's going to be a problem there unless we do something about it so that you sort of get ahead of issues before they might emerge in any of our homes. Um, I guess I'm interested in, in your view, Graham, about whether you consider the reforms as we currently know them to be um, likely to bring a tangible uplift in the delivery of, say, high-quality care. And, and what, what you think will be the biggest challenges that the sector will face through implementation? Well, I think we're, we're supportive of the reforms, absolutely, and we think the sector does need to um, continue to improve. So continuous improvement should be part of aged care and it should be focused on it. I mean, to my, to my mind, um, there is a bit more of a... Uh, a gotcha sort of uh, approach to the sector as opposed to the hospital sector, which is really embedded um, continuous improvement. And I think we need to sort of uh, shift our the way we operate, and it's up to providers to do this really. It's a leadership and a governance issue. It's up to boards. They set the tone from the top, and you've got to really you know, drive that through the organisation that we are going to improve. And part of that obviously is how do you measure that? What what are, what are you aiming for? And and uh, a lot of these reforms uh, touch on all of those things. I would say there's still not a very good definition of what high quality care is, and unless you actually define that at the start as exactly what you're trying to look for, rather than sort of um, sort of casual phrases, uh, then how can you define the workforce requirements that you need, and how can you ensure that you've got the funding needed to deliver? The outcomes that you're expecting. So you've got to start really from what is what's the output that the sector's expected, and then what are the inputs, and how are you actually going to organise yourself to deliver that? So, I mean, our view would be, yep, we think uh, the reforms are well placed, but I'd also say there's a reciprocal accountability on the government and the regulators to make sure that the reform program is properly articulated in plenty of time for providers to get themselves ready, that, um, that the sector is consulted in these changes because the operational um, sort of capability of the sector varies greatly between a large providers and, and some of the small providers and people need to be able to sort of plan for this. So good governance from a board point of view is to have a plan about how we're going to achieve milestones and how we track those to make sure that we're delivering in the right way. And we need actual consultation ahead of time and we need to have time to implement before that. So I'll give you two examples of where maybe that's not good. Um, the first one was really through the SERS uh, um, implementation. Uh, from my memory, that was implemented around Easter for us. Uh, we got the SERS sort of detail a day before it was meant to start. I mean, we've got an 8,500 workforce. I mean, how are you meant to train people in all of that without the right consultation? And the second one, which is actually much more fundamental to everyone on the line here, is the ANAC process. It's the heart and lung of any business, both clinically and financially, and yet we don't know when we're going to get 
uh, an understanding of how that's really going to work, but we've got an implementation timeframe and they're getting closer, you know. So we sort of, that's another example of where consultation um, and and actually good good planning will allow the sector to achieve outcomes which everyone wants to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, critically important, isn't it? I guess, you know, that, that, that goes to as well, doesn't it, the need for the sector to come together and advocate and press for this change as well. And, I, and Penny, I don't think we've been very good at that. In fact, we've been terrible at it for quite some time. And I think the sector's improving on that now, but I do think we've actually been, um, you know, divided and conquered around this. And mm -hmm. uh, that's very unfortunate. Graham, we might turn now to um, discuss the independence requirements in the bill. Um, and, and these are, of course, aimed at bringing constructive challenge to the boardroom. Um, in your experience, and I'm interested particularly as well in your experience in the financial services sector, does, does the tone of the boardroom and the quality of, of governance shift when independent directors are in the boardroom? I mean, I, I think I'd like to say yes. Um, um, in in the financial world where I worked, you had a very different structure of organisations. They're very large, many many shareholders, and and in part the responsibility of the independent directors was to make sure that all shareholders were treated fairly and equally, um, uh, which was a sort of a really important uh, you know sort of structure of what of what the board has to do. Um, I think it's a, it's a bit different in aged care. We've got a very different structure of the sector. You know, we've got um, a large number of very small um, operators, and you know, rather than sort of focusing things on on things like um, credit risk management and uh, those sort of things, uh, compliance, which the banking and the finance world does, really it's about resident care. Um, you know, and I think um, I would say I've seen some very good and some not good independent directors. So if you come along and you think I'm going to draw a salary as an independent director. You know, I'll do what I need to do, but I'm not really passionate about the organisation, the purpose of what the organisation is. And I think it comes back to choosing directors who align with the purpose of what your organisation is. Because if you, whether they're independent or not, if they're not aligned, they're not going to send the right signals down through the organisation and you're not going to have an effective board. So I would say yes. Uh, you know, the most important thing is to look at the skills matrix that you're looking to get across the board. I'd say independent directors bring a, an external view and, and different skill sets, which are great. But also some of the non-independent directors have a passion for the sector and a long history uh, with the organisations and they bring a lot of experience too. So I guess the mix, if you like, whether it's a majority or not, I'm actually a little bit more ambivalent about. But I think the mix of directors is a benefit to the board. Yeah, thanks. Interesting reflections, Graeme. Thanks for that. Um, the continuous disclosure obligations, again, we've just discussed, you know, n none of this is unfamiliar territory. Um, there will be uh, some uh, increased reporting requirements, prudential reporting requirements um, to the prudential regulator about material information that affects the ability of the provider to, to pay debts or their ability to continue to deliver services. Um, and the prudential regulator will also have power to designate events, facts or circumstances that may give rise to continuous disclosure obligations. Do you think this is an overreach by the regulator? Um, 
Look, I don't. No, not really. I mean, I, look, I think it's a difficult one for many operators. I mean, for us as a listed company, it's sort of bread and butter, to be honest. Um, uh, but, but the government's got $30 billion of um, money obligation, if you like, in, its, um, in the RADs in there. And I can understand why they would want to know that uh, an organisation is viable um, and that it's not going to draw on that guarantee and then, you know, um, as it has a right then to pass that risk back to, to other providers. So I, I, I sort of get the sort of the broader financial um, requirement and why they would want to make sure that the uh, operators are, are viable. And and I think as we saw in uh, it Earl Haven in, um, in Queensland, when something goes bad and goes bad quickly, um, the issues for residents uh, were, were terrible. Um, and, and, and if you see more of this opco propco sort of structure in the market, and, and there's a chance of that, then that separation uh, does lead to a high risk, I think, uh, mm. for, for, the, for the government and for the actually operating entities, uh, just given the way the funding happens. So my sense is that um, I understand why they're doing that. I would want to. I would want to be um, confident, and I'm not sure I am, that the regulator really can interpret and understand uh, the information that they're asking for effectively, uh, because you know I, I think uh, the number of entities there that they're going to look at, um, and how they're going to try to find the needle in the haystack of the entity that's not performing well and could be at risk um, in the sort of maze of, of accounting if you like, is, I think, much more challenging than, than it looks sort of theoretically. Um, so I, I sort of worry that we might be providing a lot of information without necessarily significant benefit, to be mm. honest. Yes, and certainly, um, as you say, the OPCO, COPCO structures, which we're seeing, you know, increasingly becoming more common. And, and you're right, this, this change was, was to cure the ill haven issues um, that we saw on the Gold Coast, uh, you know, these complex operating structures is, is exactly what the, the ACQSD will intend to, are intending to be examining. And Penny, just if I might yeah. say, I mean, I think what they used to do was at the end of every year you would put, you know, in a, a, a some sort of um, forms which would say what you were like about 18 months ago. So it was a complete nonsense, you know. So if you're going to do it, you've got to at least make it relevant and current. And I think that's sort of that's I think that's fine. We're absolutely fine with that, uh, provided it's not too big a burden. Well, that's right. I think um, uh, you know you can't compliance your way to you know the high quality system that we're looking for. And I think no provider wants to deal with uh, you know increased um, reporting um, an increased reporting burden. Um, Donna, I might I might now bring you in if I can. Um, we've we've heard Graham and Virginia speak about the new requirements, the new independence requirements. Do, do you think this requirement will shift board culture and, and how will that um, play out, do you think? Thanks, Penny, and um, thanks for um, the invitation. Look, I think it's interesting because obviously listening to Graham, there was a couple of points which I think are really important from a cultural change perspective around the role of an independent director and the alignment to purpose obviously being critical uh, and then obviously the skills matrix that he talked about in terms of looking at the re the relevant skills and experience. So I think, and I think the third thing um, in terms of really changing the mix and thereby you know 
potentially changing the culture of the board is the role of the chair. So, um, in fact, I think it's the, obviously the most critical role in terms of changing um, culture is the role of chair in terms of the tone that they set around fostering that inclusive and functioning board. So I think it's, it's one thing in terms of having the independent directors and obviously bringing that um, objectivity and um, you know the, the different skills and experience to the team, especially when we're staring into uh, this transformation, this major kind of industry transformation that's underway. But we shouldn't um, forget uh, the, the important role of the chair. And I think that there's going to be some, you know, it's a really good opportunity to start looking at the performance of boards in, in consideration of that and what um, you know board performance uh, you know reviews could be done really to actually start to look at how you're preparing for bringing those independent directors on board. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the um, we've we've heard it today a lot, haven't we, about culture starting from the top and and trickling down. And I guess the challenge is there's no. There's no playbook for how, how you get this right. Donna, reflecting on your experience in financial services, what do you consider are the characteristics of a good governance culture? Yeah, look, it's um, it's interesting because you know, as Graham said, very different, very different industries, very different kinds of challenges and stakeholders. But I think there are possibly a few things that um, translate and that we saw in terms of the recommendations coming through in the Aged Care Royal Commission. And some of those lessons um, uh, include things like, you know, thinking about some of the ethical considerations, so acting with integrity, not only, you know, can we, but should we, um, the integration of the resident voice into decision making. And we've heard it here today in terms of the type of information that you need to be collecting and then triangulating with a um, with a di different lens and even that um, you know that fantastic insight from Virginia about complaints um, I think importantly it's that the lens that um, came through in both royal commissions is around you know maintaining that social license to operate so considerate considering all the different um, stakeholders uh, who have a vested interest. Um, importantly, I think from boards, which was which will be an interesting challenge with the um, the independence component is thinking is that balance of thinking independently, but also kind of working as a collective. So kind of avoiding that that um, that group think. So um, and then I think what we've heard today is is some really good examples of where the boards are giving sufficient time to consider and debate those issues, and that's certainly uh, a thematic that's come up. Um, quite a lot in other discussions is that you know sometimes when you look at the agenda are we actually really focused on the key issues so I think that there are some lessons there that can be learnt which will translate and are clearly translating uh, as we've heard today with some of the examples um, so I think and the only other thing I'd kind of add to that um, Penny is just you know obviously we need to really approach this with care and consideration but you know what we've heard today is some really key messages around the, the role of defining kind of purpose, the vision and values, and and it's you know not only for for the board management, but how that's kind of communicated and um, cascaded down to to the front line in terms of you know clarity, and I'd even say extending that, you know, thinking about um, how that's communicated to your um, your partners as well, who who are going to be critical in in helping you to achieve some of these goals. So we've talked about today about the. Um, the importance of that strategy and future state approach and, and the importance of having that gap analysis to, to, to define some of the roadmap. So I think some of those things will, will continue to reinforce and so for those who haven't 
perhaps started on that journey. Um, I think Virginia really touched on that quite um, nicely in terms of the, the process that they went through uh, to, to work out what the, the priority is going to be. So, and look, you know, I think um, just, you know, to quote Jean, Virginia actually, I, I love that in terms of are we, are we prepared for a paradigm shift? So, because um, clearly that's, these are the conversations we need to be having. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's just so much noise and so much happening for this sector. It's hard to know where to, where to really start, isn't it? Um, but, but you're right. I think the, the, the first place is to start with a mapping exercise. And Virginia really helped us to frame up what that might look like. What, what do you consider might be some of the pitfalls and risks that organisations might might confront in doing that? Yeah, look, it's um, it, what's really interesting as we kind of look at you know lessons learnt from other um, major transformation regimes, and and this um, this is something to kind of take into consideration. And we've heard it today in terms of having the right people, uh, uh, the right people with the right level of experience who understand what it takes to lead an organisation through a major transformation. Um, planning fallacy is another one where um, you know, we, we underestimate timeframes and the kinds of resources that are going to be required. Uh, and I think part of the challenge of the board is really looking at that and, and asking some of those questions to test the assumptions around people's um, planning and um, program, you know, program plans that they're kind of coming, um, coming to the teams with. So there are some aspects like that, I think, that are um, really, which are really important. One of the other things which I'd say is the importance of choosing the right um, executive sponsor of these programs who can lead the initiative and has the drive. I mean, often when we see these initiatives and if they are falling in, in, in the wrong hands of someone who's not committed and engaged and leading from the front, um, you know, we tend to see issues like teams operating in isolation and responding to the recommendations um, in a piecemeal way and, and really, you know, ticking the box, yes, but um, absolutely losing an opportunity to drive you know, potentially the opportunity to simplify, potentially you know, other areas where you're able to get you know, more business value. So I think some of those things um, in terms of sponsorship, you know, ensuring you've got the right um, skills and experiences, testing your assumptions along the way, uh, and, and you know, particularly given COVID, are, are we kind of approaching some of this with a pre-COVID mentality or not? Um, and then um, you know, what we talked about before in terms of just having a very, very clear sense of you know, the end state, what, what is it that we're trying to do? And probably the last thing which we have touched on already is just the, the critical um, role that, you know, clear communication plays um, in the organisation at this time. Clear communication around what's important, what the priorities are, is so, is so important um, to hear from the board um, down for those in the organisations battling in, in um, the environment that they are, you know, what, what are our priorities and how are we going to tackle them? And, and, and you know, how do we set up a decision-making framework that allows us to do that relentless prioritisation that's required? Donna, just a final question then. Do you, obviously this is a very compliance-focused, um, you know, piece of work that our clients are embarking on. Um, do you think that the compliance focus runs at risk of making operators too risk-adverse? Mm, it's a it's a good question, and I think um, you know I think what may what may happen in this industry probably wouldn't be too dissimilar to what happened in others, in which there is a, there will probably be a bit of a pendulum swing, of course, in terms of 
you know, going to one extreme, being very focused on, um, you know, putting these practices in place, and then and then um, and then kind of moving, hopefully, into a what we're turning into a, a business as usual mode. So, look, I, I think that um, you know that pendulum will will swing. I think the question will be, you know, where does it kind of come back to? And I think that's the important that's the important message for boards in terms of really setting the tone around what is the right tone from a risk culture perspective. So, you know, yes, we don't, um, you know, there are obvious benefits to having a, a compliance orientated culture within, you know, within means. So I think that that's important to kind of monitor that and ensure that we're not, you know, the pendulum hasn't swung too far so that we're not actually taking um, the, the level of risk that we need in the business. If I just could add a, a point there, I mean, I think any of our businesses will struggle if we take a compliance focus rather than a continuous improvement focus, because just getting to the sort of the minimum is not good enough. And and I think, you know, that's where you get to compliance, but actually that's not where you've got to get to. And I think Donna made, also made the point that any change you're making here should be looked in the lens of how can it benefit the organisation beyond just ticking a box as a compliance thing. So any of these changes, um, whether whatever they are, you've got to look for the real organisational, the wider organisational benefit from any change you're bringing through and look to try to integrate that as part of the whole change program. I mean, it's just sort of critical. Otherwise, all we're going to do is keep chasing our tail on the compliance side. Thanks, Graeme. That's, that's excellent summary. Thank you very much. That was Minter Ellison Partners Penelope Eden and Donna Worthington, along with Virginia Burke from Mercy Health and Graham Hodges from Regis Health. For more information about these issues and more, visit MinterEllison.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. And you can rate, comment and listen to our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening and goodbye for now.